Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another exciting, thrilling episode of Views on View. I am Steve Edwards, the host with the face for radio and the voice for being a mime, but I'm still your host. And today I'm flying solo as a panelist, but I have a frequent and amazing guest, Val Karpov. How are you doing, Val? Doing great. How are you doing, Steve? Good, good. I'm enjoying some nice weather here in the Portland area for a change. We had rain through like mid-July, I swear, so it's nice to get some sun. Yeah, and listen to good. all the Portlanders complain about how hot it is, but uh, that's besides the point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you guys are spoiled. I live in Miami. It's uh, it's hot all year round, and now it's even more hot. Miami oh, yeah. has seasons. There's, uh, there's hot and somewhat dry, and then really hot and really rainy, and we're in the really <laughs> hot and really rainy part of the year. Although it's been a surprisingly dry summer. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's good. Uh, yeah, we don't have much humidity here, so I know you get a bit of that, right? Yeah, quite a lot. You get used to it after a few years. After but few yeah, years. coming from the Bay Area, I was was a big transition, a culture shock. Yeah, when uh, back in November, the week of Thanksgiving, my family and I came down to Orlando and did the, you know, the Disneyland and theme parks, and we were at uh, Legoland one day. And when we were going in, talking to the guy at the gate, my mom was talking to him and it was actually some of, sort of a cool day. It's like around for us, you know, around seventy or something like that. It was pretty decent, a little cloudy. Yeah. And she asked something about the weather and to the guy, and he his comment was along the lines, "Yeah, it's nice. It's, right now it's pretty nice. As, uh, a lot of times it's like he called it the third level of Hades. I think was his <laughs> description for the, <laughs> the temperature and the, and the humidity. But yeah, we actually had a nice day that day. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So we are going to talk some geeky JavaScript stuffs today. Uh, we'll get into view probably a little bit down the road, but uh, Val has a book on promises and async await. And I'm looking for the link, and I totally forgot what the actual That's title is. It's called Mastering Async Await. The website is just asyncawait.net. No, uh, no spaces, no dashes. Right. And we will put that into the show notes for those of you that don't like to type into your browser and just want to click on links. But let's get to, first of all, before we get into the nitty gritty, uh, you're well known in the podcast and JavaScript world, but why don't you just give us a brief background who you are, why you're famous, what you work on, etc. Yeah, most people know me as the maintainer of Mongoose. It's um, it's an ODM for Node and MongoDB. Most use database framework on NPM. 
cool little accomplishment there. I also blog at thecodebarbarian.com and masteringjs.io. Um, and I run a small dev shop here in Miami Beach called Mean It Software. And since we are Vue, we got to talk about Vue. So obviously, most of your work is on Node, as you mentioned. But uh, what's your? How, much, how often do you get to use Vue and do some front end type of work? I'd probably say like three or four days a week, I'm doing at least some Vue. For the most part, I try to keep my front ends in view. Um, I do kind of, uh, I joke that I am like a quadzilla in the, uh, like the back end front end stack. You know, you have like, uh, you have like full stack developers who are very front end heavy and that's like the guy with the big biceps, but chicken legs. <laughs> I'm, I'm the opposite. I do a lot of back end and, uh, occasionally do some front end. The real skinny oh, yeah. arms, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, like we're talking about ahead of time. It's like, I don't use Vue very often. What is it? I don't do front end very often. When I do, I do use Vue. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I have have one client that does React, but uh, they... uh, well, they don't really like using React and kind of just stuck with that code base. But other than that, yeah, other uh, other clients use Vue. So I probably have about four or five different Vue projects that I work on right now. Rather, you know, uh, applications that use Vue as for front end. Right. Yeah, I am so going to a meme generator and creating that meme for you when we're done here. I can I can already see it. <laughs> Most interesting right. man in the world, for sure. Okay, so let's talk about promises and async await because, you know, obviously one of the beauties of JavaScript as compared to something like maybe PHP or Java is the asynchronous nature where you can send a request and then go on and do what you're doing and then have it come back and say, hey, I got your stuff, right? So you're not tying up, you're freezing your whole web page, waiting for this particular request to fire. I think one of the best examples I ever saw that illustrated this was a, a set of pictures using a bank teller. And considering my first job out of college was as a banker for a while, it sort of struck home with me, you know, where you have the uh, bank teller standing there and a customer comes up, says, hey, I want to uh, get into my safe deposit box. And so the teller gets another employee, says, hey, go handle this. And then she takes the next client. And then the next client wants to do something and she can hand it off as compared to having to go get the safe deposit box and do all that before coming back and dealing with the rest of her clients. Is that a, a pretty accurate uh, description? Wow. That is a great metaphor. I really, uh, I really metaphor. like that. There we go. That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> I will absolutely steal that. That metaphor is perfect. Yeah. That's a very accurate description. Okay. So how about a little bit of history of async weight and promises, which came first, and and what is the second supposed to do that the first didn't? Well, promises came first, async await came later. If you've been around JavaScript as long as I have, you'll remember when everyone used callbacks for everything. Um, it was especially painful in Node because you know trying to do like more like three or four requests in uh, with using callbacks was very painful. And then if you tried to add in if statements, some sort of conditional logic, it would get really out of hand really quick. So there were libraries like async that promised to make it a little bit better. But I think like around 2014, like promises really started becoming popular and started like really consolidating in um, in the node space. And then when ES6 came out in 2015, they included uh, promises as a core part of the JavaScript language spec. So now you have a promise class built into well, every browser, into Node, into every JavaScript runtime. Yes, the so, term that comes to mind that I remember is callback hill, I think, where you have the whole pyramid that slowly goes off to the right and then back to the left, you know, as your callbacks get 
Yeah, yeah. Callback hell. Other terms I heard uh, was uh, was pyramid of doom, and yes. uh, favorite was banana code. <laughs> banana code. Okay, yeah, that fits too. Yeah, I was Angular one. Angular JS was where I first started seeing that. That was my first foray into JavaScript. And I can still r- remember writing some controllers like that for sure. Yeah, if you remember correctly, like Angular one did actually have a promise implementation where like you could like inject um, Q, which was like a early user land promise library. Um, okay. That was a long, long time ago. Right. Um, and then, okay, so let's talk about how promises work and what they do. I know most people, you know, they have the, what's it, the resolve and the reject parameters, and then you have to append the then to wait for the promise to resolve. And that's just high-level gobbledygook. So can you uh, give a little more accurate, shall we say, and detailed description of how promises work? I mean, that's a pretty accurate description of how you uh, how you use promises. Under the hood, a promise is just a state machine that represents a uh, a potentially async operation. So like a promise starts out in pending state, which just means like, okay, uh, operation has started. It may or may not finish at some point. To, uh, and then it, the promise either transitions to fulfilled, as in the promise is completed and has a value, or rejected, as in there was an error that occurred. So that's where resolve and reject come in. So if you create a new promise using like the uh, using new promise in JavaScript, you pass in a function called the executor function and JavaScript calls your executor function with uh, with two parameters, resolve and reject. Your executor function is then responsible for calling either resolve to uh, to fulfill the promise or reject to uh, to say that the promise rejected through an error. Okay, so let's get into a real example, probably one of the most commonly used I would guess uses of a promise is making an API call, right? You're on your front end, you need to get some data from your back end, whatever language it is, whatever type it is, you name it. And so you're going to make your call. And then when it's resolved, you would want to return a resolve. And if for some reason there's an error, you know, 422, a 500, 404, and how many other cool sounding numbers I can throw out there, then you would pass reject, which basically tells your calling code, sorry, I didn't, I didn't, uh, get what you wanted, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's like, if you were to say, write a, uh, you know, write a promise based wrapper around like a callback only API, like say like HTML or XML HTTP request. That's the one. Most, um, most APIs like, uh, like fetch and Axios, they act, they return promises for you. So you don't need to do resolve or reject yourself. They do it for you. But you can imagine, like, if you were writing, like, your own fetch polyfill or whatever, you would do something along the lines of return new promise, pass in a function that takes in resolve and reject, do some logic to make an, uh, an HTTP request. You know, if uh, if ready state equals four or whatever the thing is for XML HTTP request, then fire resolve, otherwise fire reject. However, there is some nuance as to whether or not like a 400 error counts as an error. And that's actually one big difference between uh, between fetch and Axios. So with fetch, if you make an ape or with the native fetch API in browsers, let me be explicit on that. If you call if you use the native fetch API in a browser, make an API request, the API request returns like an HTTP 409. Uh, fetch will not reject the promise. It will resolve it with a status of 409. It will only throw an error if there's like a network connectivity issue. Axios is different in that it will throw a error if there's a connectivity issue, if it like can't talk to the server for some reason. It will throw an error, a slightly different error, 
and it will throw a slightly different error if the the server returns like a 409 or 422 or 500. Right. So I remember there's one app I was dealing on where I was using, you know, standard arrest to a Java backend and, and it was diff- one of the things I had to deal with was console error messages, which I guess aren't a big deal to the end user. But if I would make a request, I had to see if something existed, right? And so you pass an ID value for whatever your entity is, and it didn't. So you'd get an error in your console. Sorry, sorry, this didn't exist, even though that was really only the way to tell. So you're yeah, getting that, an invalid uh, error. Fetch. <laughs> huh? That was either probably fetch or the API was returning like a status code that was, that was something that was actually like indicative of the request succeeding, but then contains an error, which is also possible. Like GraphQL, I'm pretty sure like the memory serves like the underlying HTTP request to GraphQL will still return a 200 even if you, even if there's some error. I don't remember the exact particulars. I'm probably one of the few people that actually makes uh, native HTTP calls to, uh, to occasionally make GraphQL requests, mostly because I don't like, I don't use GraphQL very much. Yeah, I've seen that before where, and I've had to write code before that where you, or 200 is returned, it's successful, but there's nothing there where there's an error or something, which is always fun to deal yeah, with for yeah. sure. It's always fun to, you know, determine what constitutes an error versus what doesn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that gets right. to the, have like a weird philosophical question that's probably a little too boring to get into on a podcast. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's in the weeds for sure. So now... Axios, like you've mentioned Axios, and that's, I think, one of the most, if not the mostly used, most used API, you know, library for making calls to, you know, to endpoints and getting data and so on. And so yeah. that, so if you make an Axios call, it will return a promise. So then you need to be, handle the success and error states, right? So usually it's, it's called, it's a thenable promise. So you, you know, do a dot then, which picks up, which it calls if, you had success, and then you can do whatever you need to do with the data, right? Yeah, more or less. Venable is a different term. So like uh, oh, okay. a venable is a superset of a promise where like all promises are venables, but not all venables are promises, specifically because like to be a promise in JavaScript, you need to be like strictly instance of promise, whereas okay. a venable means like any object that happens to have a dot then function. Mm-hmm. And that is actually uh, very important for async await. And kind of useful for promises as well, too, because uh, if you want to, should we get into promise chaining? Because that's a good segue. I from, was uh, from just about to go there. I was just about to go there. Actually, I was talking with that and multiple promises. So I was talking with uh, Drew Baker earlier today. He's been a he's a big next guy that's in L.A. And he's been a panelist on here before with me. And uh, he said that uh, one of the questions he wanted me to ask you was about, uh, he said, be sure to ask how to do multiple async requests in parallel. Using uh, <laughs> promise is all I think is the answer. So we can get to there. But yeah, let's, yeah, let's talk about chaining because I've even seen callback hell with, with promises where you do a then and then you want to do something else based on that and then something else based on that, which is a real life scenario. You know, you're not yeah, always going to get everything you need from one API call. So I would uh, say that it. for the most part, like if you're using promise chaining, you're correctly, you're not going to end up with like a true pyramid of doom or banana code. But I find that a lot of people use, uh, they tend to end up using promises in like in a callback like fashion, where they do, okay, promise one dot then, okay, in that, and then within that, within the then callback, the first parameter to dot then is a function called onfulfilled. So like you pass it an onfulfilled function, and JavaScript, there's this response, or the promise library, 
is responsible for calling your unfulfilled function if the promise is fulfilled. Um, so then people go into their uh, unfulfilled handler, they get another promise and call dot then, pass in an unfulfilled, go into that unfulfilled, and do promise dot then on another promise. Um, and then you start looking at uh, you start looking at basically callback hell or pyramid of doom or banana code all over again. Um, that makes me dizzy just there, hearing that. Yeah, that pattern is surprisingly like it's tempting if you are uncomfortable with promise chaining. Uh-huh. And to be fair, promise chaining like when you first see it, you kind of need to like scratch your head and be like, "Huh, does this actually work?" And uh, the answer is yes, it does because the uh, the key. So you'll, uh, one. One detail that like you need to that people don't really unwrap enough about the like core promise API is that um you notice how the param the first parameter to the executor function is called resolve, not fulfill, even though a promise is either fulfilled or rejected, not resolved or rejected. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's actually like a really important thing that um that you know a lot of people don't really like don't really like get into the weeds enough to kind of understand why that's different. The kicker is that if you call resolve with a non-promise value, it's the same thing as calling is the same thing as fulfilling the promise, right? But if you call resolve with a value that's a promise or broadly speaking a venable but promise for practical purposes. So if you call resolve with a uh, with a promise value, what happens is like your promise now assim- quote unquote assimilates the uh, the state of the other promise. So like if I call, uh, if I have a promise P1 within that promises executor function, I call resolve on P2. P1 is now tied to the state of P2. So if, if P2 resolves, P1 then resolves with the same value. Other, and if P2 rejects, then P1 rejects. So what happens if you, re- so long story short, if you have a unfulfilled handler in your dot then that returns a promise, then you get back a new promise that is tied to the value of the promise that you returned. Okay. So, yeah. so it's a little hard to kind of get into, but like, okay, I, I make one fetch request in the, in the dot then I return another fetch request, right? So at that point, dot then returns a new promise that represents the, that represents kind of the series of the first fetch request followed by the second fetch request and resolves to, and, fulfills with the value of the second fetch request. Right. I'm, I'm going to guess you cover this in detail in your book. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, good. Because I would be sitting here trying to comprehend that. Yeah, it gets um, it gets a little tricky. And one of the things that I do in the book is I actually kind of walk through how to build like a promise library from scratch that's promises A plus compliant. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have a uh, I also have a GitHub repo that contains like um, a fully a have, like educationally oriented promise implementation. It's like a couple hundred lines of code. It's not. Uh, it's not huge, but it does fulfill like all the uh, all the spec cases for uh, for being a valid promise library. Okay, good. Well, that could be sure a, that link. That could be worth looking. Oh, yeah. Long story short, with if you're doing promise chaining, you should be returning a promise from your dot then callback. You shouldn't be uh, you shouldn't be calling dot then within a dot then callback because then you're getting uh, because then you're just doing callback hell all over again. Yeah, I mean that makes sense. That's generally how chaining works, right? In order to chain things on, you got to have your full object or whatever it is passed along, whether you do it in PHP or any other language, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and 
in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Okay, so can you sort of describe, and you maybe you've done this and I just missed it, sort of describe how that looks from a code standpoint where you have a, a neat sort of chaining. I mean, if you're in a promise, right? So you've defined your promise, let's say new promise, resolve, reject, and you're inside of that. But you have to return a full promise from within your promise? Did I understand uh, no, that correctly? You, uh, no, you don't do that. So okay. with that, with promises, there's a bit of a separation between like what the internals of the promise operation and uh, the external API. So like the question is, is are you looking at a promise as a person consuming the promise-based API or the person writing the promise-based API? So if you're writing the promise-based API, then you're kind of doing, okay, I got resolve and reject. What do I do with my, with the state of my promise? as a consumer of a promise-based API, you're calling that then. Right. Okay. Well, what are you passing from within your promise, though, that allows it to be changed? Just Is it this or just... That's where I'm getting confused. Oh, honestly, you're, uh, you're not passing anything. So the promise library is responsible for handling chaining. So you can think about it as like as going into the looking at it from the perspective of the person writing the promise-based API, if you call resolve with a value, that's like, okay, I'm returning this value to the, mm -hmm. uh, to the consumer of my API. If I'm rejecting, that means I'm throwing an error to the, uh, to the consumer of my API. Then as the consumer of the API, I have no view into those internals of the uh, of a promise at all. Right. So like all I have is a another thing about promises is like you as a consumer of a promise-based API, you can't reach in and take a look at what the current value is or what the current error is. All you have is dot then. That's the only way that you can access the internal state of the promise. So like dot then is how you uh, is how you basically tell the promise. Okay, give me uh, give me a value if you you're fulfilled, or give me a the error if you're if you rejected. Hmm. Okay. So then the need. So then getting back to this. So then you can chain them. I've seen I've seen code examples before where you where you chain them and it actually looks nice and neat, right? Because you're doing then and you're yeah, basically yeah. stacking one on top of the other, right? Is that correct? Yeah. Like if you're doing promise chaining right. You just have like a flat line of dot bends with no extra indentation. Hmm, okay. Obviously, there's edge cases. There are cases where maybe sometimes you want to do a nested then, but for the most part, like if you're using promise chain correctly, it just looks like okay, dot then, dot then, dot then, dot then for however many lines you need. Okay. So then the other thing we mentioned here briefly was waiting for a bunch of or handling them in parallel or waiting for a group of them to resolve before you go on. And I've used promises all for promise to all before. Is that are those two different things, promise all and handling multiple in parallel? Promise dot all is like the most the most common way to do uh, to execute multiple promises in parallel. There is also an alternative called promise dot all settled. 
So they're slightly different in the case of error handling. The thing with promise.all is, so again, promise.all returns a promise that is constructed of all the promises that is constructed based on the promises that are passed into it. So uh, basically, promise.all returns a promise that either fulfills with the array of all the values that the ar- array of promises that you passed in fulfill with. So like, say you pass in promise.resolve1 to promise.resolve2, promise.resolve3 to promise.all. If, uh, if that promise is, if the promise that promise.all returns is fulfilled, it returns an array 1, 2, 3. However, if there's an error, it will only resolve with, with the error and the first error that occurred in the promises that executed in parallel. Promise.all settled. So in other words, at- so yeah. So promise.all, like, assume that you pass in like three different async operations. Promise.all will, uh, will wait until either all of those operations fulfill or until one of those operations rejects. I think that's a better way of putting it. I probably got a bit off the rails there. Promise.all settled is a little different in the sense that it will wait for all of the promises to uh, to settle. A settled promise is a promise that's either resolved or rejected or fulfilled or rejected. And kind of an important detail there for async await is a promise that is fulfilled stays fulfilled forever, and a promise that is rejected stays rejected forever. But back to promise all settled, you pass in a bunch of operations to promise that all settled and promise that all settled waits for all of the all of the operations to settle. So either fulfill or reject. And it will return an array that that describes whether each um, whether each operation succeeded or failed and what value it filled or rejected with. Does that make more sense? Right. So if I understand it correctly, promise.all by itself is going to reject as soon as it hits an error, right? Where promise.all settled will wait till everything's done and then give you your error. Yeah, and then give you a collection of all the errors that occurred. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So if they, to follow your example, then if if all four were to successfully resolve, so you made four calls, everything came back successful, then you're going to do a then on promise.all, right? And you'll have your data that gets passed to you from all the different calls, I'm guessing in an array or? Yeah, in an array. So like array that kind of lines up with the uh, with the values that you passed in. So like um, you call promise.all with like ABC, you get out, um, you get out like an array that contains like what? what A resolved to, what B resolved to, and then what C resolved to. Right. Okay. Yeah, I've used that before inside Vuex now that I think about it. So cool. All right. So that's promises. Then along comes async await. So I think, you know, most people know it was an attempt to make promises easier. Syntactic sugar, maybe. Is that an accurate description or what was the purpose of introducing async await syntax? I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's an accurate description. Um, now, promises are, as uh, as we've gone through here, as you can imagine, promises are a little hard to grok. Like, a little. I mean, they are just fundamentally a state machine, but like things like promise chaining are a bit of can be a bit of a head scratcher. And then, um, and then if you also add in issues like it's kind of hard to work with conditional logic with promises, it just gets a little bit messier than I would like. The benefit of async await is like now you can write async code. Using using promise based libraries, but with but with kind of like CS one hundred one level syntax, like you're um you're you're writing for loops, you're writing if statements, you're using try catch. These are all the kind of things that like you know like first week of boot camp you probably uh, you would learn. So that makes it a lot easier to uh, to work with. Like probably where uh, where async await like really started clicking for me was like at my last company um we had uh we had some iOS devs who like didn't really write javascript weren't really comfortable with it 
you showed them a promise chain, they would probably like scratch their heads and be like, what is this? But on the other hand, they were able to contribute like pretty meaningful, uh, pretty meaningful functionality just because our backend was written async await. So it's just kind of like, oh yeah, you know, I can kind of like muddle through and uh, I can write a for loop and an if statement, make some changes to the code to reflect issues that I see in the field and put in a pull request, get reviewed and yeah, ready to go. Yeah, makes it much easier for people that aren't JavaScript experts to write JavaScript. Yeah, I can attest to that fact that it was, I found it much easier to write async await than to do with promises for sure. So now the syntax is a little different in that you basically have to declare a function as async outside and then inside you use the await syntax on whatever your, your promise call is, right? So, and then if you tried to use await without defining function as async, then it threw an error at you. Yeah, that's exactly right. So async function, um, new type of function, difference being that like async functions always return a promise. You, there's no way to make an async function return something other than a promise. But if, if you return something from an async function body, like you have async function return 42, you won't get back 42 when you call that async function. They'll get back a promise that resolves to 42. And, and yeah, the benefit of using an async function is you can use uh, you can use await within the body of an async function. Right. And so the, the benefit of the await is sort of as its name indicates, right, that you can make your code do something, an asynchronous function synchronously. To me, it seems sort of a good yeah. description because sure. you get to okay. a line and you're like, async my method. Okay, so const my val equals await axios.get whatever, right? And yeah. so exactly. until until that function that is returned, your code doesn't continue to execute. Yeah, that's um that's about right. The interesting thing there is though like how to how to put this. Your function doesn't like your function does your async function doesn't block when you call async. So I or you call await or when you use await. So what ends up happening when you call or when you use await is the JavaScript runtime kind of pauses the execution of the async function. So like JavaScript is still like, you know, practically speaking, single threaded in the sense that no two functions can run at the exact same time, right? Mm-hmm. But the thing with uh, with an async function is when you call await axios.get, uh, that function isn't running anymore. It's actually just suspended. It's run, uh, it'll run when the Axios request is done. So if you've ever used like a generator function or have you used generators in JavaScript? No. And I was reading about that, something you had mentioned in, uh, one AC generator functions, you know, blog post about it from about three years ago, it looks like. Yeah. I've yeah. heard about them, haven't had an opportunity to really, uh, to utilize them. Maybe I haven't. I just haven't known how to. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, no. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, like now that we have async await, like I am, I often struggle to find a use case for generators. Like async generators are still kind of useful, mostly like for, for like the for await const construct, like async iterators. Those are, uh, those are pretty cool. Um, generators are not as useful. But what makes generators really interesting is that they're kind of like a user land equivalent to async await in the sense that like a generator function is a function that um, that executes until uh, until the first yield. And then like you have like a, uh, a handle to that generator function that you call next on to resume execution. So like a generator function executes pauses when it calls yield. And then the code that's calling the generator function can decide when the generator function should pick back up again. So generators are like kind of similar to async await in a lot of ways. And um, if you ever, did you ever see the library co? C-O? No, I don't think so. 
that one well from probably around like 2014 to 2016 that was or 2017 that was kind of like the async await await equivalent Mm -hmm. the uh what code did was it basically like implemented something very much like async await syntax but using generators because generators were introduced in es 2015 or es6 and then uh, async await came out two years later so until async await was like broadly adopted co was very popular yeah i'm looking through some code here so i'm working my day-to-day app is a pretty large laravel and view app and i've actually used generators in php in laravel i'm not sure if that's the same thing as the way they're used in javascript but i know python's generators are pretty similar to javascript i haven't looked at php in a long time so i can't really say but uh, I, i would imagine it's not too far off um if generators are something where you know you have like a function that can that pauses when you yield and then you resume it later. Yeah, I used it for it looked there's some I know there's at least the PHP version I'm looking at it and it's coming back to me sort of there. I know there are some performance uh issues because I'm doing some stuff with Redis and running a task behind the scenes. But that's about the closest I've come to generators. <laughs> at least is in another language for sure. We can uh you know generators is a whole separate topic, but uh, async await is like similar or kind of like you can almost think of it as like a native JavaScript implementation of a generator or a special case of a generator where if you yield a promise, the, uh, the runtime waits for that promise to settle before it, uh, before it resumes your code. So if you await on a promise, what the JavaScript runtime does under the hood is it actually calls then and it basically passes in an unfulfilled that returns the, uh, the value that the promise fulfills with or an unrejected that throws a uh, catchable error. So like you can use try catch to catch errors in uh, that await p th- can throw or you can assign like the uh, the value of um, or you can say like you know const v equals await p and you get the uh, the value that the promise resolves to. So like you can think of await as like unwrapping a promise basically but in like a uh, in, a, in an async friendly way where um, where you, basically like you're uh, you're pausing your function execution until uh, until the promise is done, so like other code can execute, like in view, own view, like renders can happen and people and uh, users can click buttons and whatnot on the node end. You know, other requests can be processed. Right. So you know, we mentioned at the beginning the the syntax where you have async, you define your function as async, then use await, and but then along came top level await. Can you talk about what top level await is and how it's at least supposed to make things easier? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I haven't used top level await very much, so I don't know like the uh, the nuances behind it. But the general idea of async of top level await is that like you can't use await outside of an async function. So normally you can't use it in the top level of a script. So like you can't just have uh, you can't just have like a script like HTTP.js that does await axios.get at the top level without wrapping it in an async function, right? Right. So top level await, like in theory, lets you execute await at the top level without wrapping it in an async function. Mm-hmm. I don't really know how that affects like imports or require or how that works. In, in my experience, like I don't really use top level await much just because the use cases where I think I want to use top level or await are like, one-off re- one-off scripts that just I kind of execute a node or like scripts that potentially reproduce a bug in Mongoose could potentially be useful, but like out of in production code, I don't find myself wanting to use top-level await. Mm, okay, 
Yeah, I've heard about it and haven't had really much chance to use it either. But definitely something I wanted to address since we're talking async away, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. So before we move on to one last topic, is there anything else in promises or async await uh, that you think would be worth mentioning? Right. This is views on view. We can talk about async await with view. <laughs> there you go. Okay. So is there anything particular to view or preference of one over the other? in your experience in making asynchronous calls? So, well, one thing I really like about Vue is like it actually has pretty good support for async await, unlike some other frameworks. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, like in React, like your render function needs to be synchronous. If you want to put pass an async function to like a use effect hook, like you're, you're not really supposed to do that. So like React, you kind of are stuck writing sync logic. There's suspense. Um, I haven't really played with Suspense enough, but I don't think Suspense has actually been formally released yet, has it? It's in Vue 3. Oh, I meant the React version. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, React. Oh, that I I don't know. Sure. Yeah, I I haven't followed closely enough. I know, like, what I really like about, well, async await as well as Vue and as well as Vue's implementation of async await is error handling. Um, specifically, there's the error captured hook. One of the neat things about, uh, about async await is like errors bubble up in async, um, and async functions kind of the same way that, uh, that they do in synchronous functions. So like, let's say you have a function call three layers down the stack that throws an error, that error bubbles up to the stack. So you can, uh, so if you have like function A that calls a function B, that calls a function C, that calls a function D that throws an error, A can wrap the call for B in a try catch and catch the error from D in pretty much the same way that you would with any sort of synchronous logic. And now what Vue adds is a neat little error captured lifecycle hook. So similar to how you do like mounted or uh, or updated on a Vue component, you can also do error captured, which will catch sync or async errors in methods, hooks, etc. from any component down the uh, down the component tree. And again, those errors bubble up to the uh, the next captured hook. So like you can actually have like okay, a top level app component that has an error captured hook that captures any unhandled errors anywhere down the uh, the component tree, whether they're synchronous or asynchronous. And then you can also have like, oh, if you want a specific error captured hook for this one portion of the component tree, you actually can just put an error captured hook like at the root of that uh, subtree of your component tree and say, okay, now uh, all the errors for this particular subsection, like everything related to the nav bar has its own dedicated error captured hook and any subcomponent of the nav bar any errors that it throws will get handled by this one error captured hook. Everything else will get another error captured hook. So yeah, the error captured hook is pretty huge just because like here's, you know, here's a way to handle sync and async errors in a way that uh, that JavaScript really didn't have before. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I think the one thing, you know, you and I had discussed earlier that's worth pointing out, and you mentioned it, I think I'll just mention it specifically, is that the error captured hook is not going to catch errors, async promise errors from the same component. Right? Yeah, it's only yeah. going to catch Any them child. from children components. So you, if you have a tree of component A, B, and C, where B imports C and A imports B and so on. So if you had an async or promise based error in B or C, it would bubble all the way up to A. So yeah, top exactly. level, or if you want to think parent child one child two, if it's easier just to think of it that way. So boy, I could think of a number of <laughs> places where I could use something like that for sure. Around our oh, yeah. so so yeah, I end up using async await for basically everything or everything view related. 
the the trade-off there would be like, okay, maybe the browser support isn't as great, but the apps that I'm working on don't really worry about like, you know, support for IE 10 or anything like that. That's mm-hmm. non-priority. So I'm like, I'm happy enough just shipping um, async await code and not really transpiling it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, what I really, what I really like about async await is again, it makes it easy for their, for as a technical architect, it makes it easy for me to like make sure that errors are handled in some sane way. And as like, mm-hmm. that's kind of like my architect level thinking is basically like, it's my responsibility to make sure that uh, my team can focus on like the happy path code. Maybe some error handling if they, uh, if there's, um, if there's something specific, like, okay, uh, if this strike call failed, like we want to show something that's like a little bit more detailed than a generic error message. But like, it's my job to make it so that they can focus primarily on happy path. So I can, uh, so I can focus on oh, all the things that can go wrong. How do we, uh, how do we handle when things go wrong? How do we report it? How do we make sure we can debug what's going wrong? things like that. Oh, so you don't subscribe to the black hole method of error handling where they just disappear to a black hole and you leave your users wondering what went wrong? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I don't like that one either. <laughs> well, another one that I don't really like is um, is like, well, I, I really don't like Go's uh, error handling syntax. I mean, like Go as a language has some neat benefits, but like their error handling is just unpleasant because I'm like, do I really, really need to manually bubble up every single potential error? Like that's just really annoying. And async await is kind of the opposite of that, where like errors just kind of bubble up by default and you don't really need to think about it. Like mm-hmm. um the other interesting kind of like nuance with with error captured and promise chaining is that error if unless you return a promise from a function error captured won't catch any errors that happen in that promise chain so you uh, oh. so if you want to replace like a function that an async mounted hook with a mounted hook that returns a promise chain um, you need to make sure that you're returning that promise chain because if you miss that return statement error captured won't handle any errors up top and that's simply because like again async fun- async functions always return a promise so that means that view has the ability to look into that uh, into that uh, into that async function and catch any errors that occur but if you have a function that uses a promise chain but doesn't return that promise chain there's no way to catch any errors that or any unhandled errors that occur in that promise chain if you know if you get what i'm saying does that make sense yeah i do at least uh at least conceptually right now i suppose when i get down to write it i say what but uh (laughs) at least in my head right now i i get the picture for sure so all right so that's a lot of mind-numbing stuff on promises and async await before we move on to picks anything else that you think we should discuss cover about those two not at the moment is there anything that you wanted to uh want to hear a little bit more about no my brain is full if you've uh, (laughs) If you've ever seen that classic Far Side cartoon where the kid raises his hand and says, "Excuse me, I'd like to leave. My brain is full." That's my brain right now. <laughs> that sounds like a, that sounds like a good pick to share because I don't. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I have to see because I know that uh, Gary Larson has a Far Side site now. For a long time, he went. Him and his syndicate went after anybody that posted Far Side cartoons anywhere on the internet and said, "Hey, you want to take this down? This is copyright." So you couldn't find anything posted anywhere. But now that he's got his own site, thefarside.com, he's posting a lot of stuff. I haven't looked in a while, so that one might be out there. If I can, I'll put a link. But yeah, that's a classic for sure, for sure. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. 
We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. So uh, we'll move on to picks. Picks are things that we like to talk about that maybe aren't code-related since we do have lives outside of coding, at least some of us. Books, movies, food, travel, you name it. I will start out just to give Val a little more time to, <laughs> to contemplate if he has any picks. Speaking of cartoons, I happen to come across this item today on Hacker News, and it is a Calvin and Hobbes search engine. So a guy named Mike Yingling uh, wrote it, and uh, he talks about how there's a couple different uh, scripts and collection of strips on various websites. And so he's combined them to for you to be able to type in some text and find certain cartoons. I know my kids, when they were much younger, were avid readers of Calvin and Hobbes. So I have seen most of them, if not all of them, <laughs> at some point in my adult life, and even when they were first being published. So it's a yeah, michaelyingling.com, random Calvin and Hobbes with the link in the show notes. And then as usual, the anticipation of most everybody who listens to this podcast are the dad jokes of the week. Not really, but I'll say that anyway. As a new dad, I look forward to these. Yes. So let's do some of my more recent ones here. I have a post them in Slack every day for work too. So I have a quite a, between that and Twitter, I have quite the collection going here. So I've been told this one was old, but it's the first time I heard it and I liked it anyway. So what is worse than finding a worm inside of your apple? I don't know. Half of a worm. <laughs> or finding half of a worm inside your apple. That's sort of, yeah. That's Not pretty good. good. Right. So we know our superheroes, right? Batman, Superman. So Superman has supervision, obviously. Why doesn't Batman have supervision? His parents died. Bat? No, his oh. parents died. Get it? Uh, that's, uh, that's pretty good. Super. A little morbid, I know. But uh, I got one for you. Go for so, uh, it. My kid walked up to me and said, Hi, Daddy, I'm hungry. So I responded, hi, hungry, I'm daddy. <laughs> that has to be one of the oldest in the book, but it's a classic. It's a very good I love that one. Yes, it is. My kids, dad, knock it off. Sorry. So <laughs> yeah, I look forward to my kid being old enough to uh, <laughs> to tell me to knock it off. How old is he now? Uh, she's nine months. She's, nine months. Yeah, that's a little bit young for the dad jokes yet, but uh, it's never too early to start, to be honest. You know, I love my uh, my cow jokes. You know, like, uh, what do you call a cow with no legs? Ground beef. No. <laughs> My more recent one was, what do you call a cow with one leg? It's a steak, right? Nice. So, <laughs> right. So my more recent one is, what is a cow emoji called? It, an emoji. <laughs> right. That's a good one. And then... I can uh, do this all day. <laughs> And then finally, what is small, red, and whispers? I don't know. A horse radish. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. All righty. So your turn now that I buttered you up. Grease the skids, however you want to call it. What do you got for us for picks? Let's see here. So I've been, I've gotten into this, uh, this new hydration supplement called LMNT or just like elements. I don't know how you pronounce it. Really good. Very tasty. Got lots of magnesium. So it's really good for you. Check it out. Uh, let's see. And another note. Uh, well, let's see. I've been getting more into watching kid-friendly TV lately because I have a nine-month-old. So right. I, re yes. I most recently finished watching this uh, Netflix original series called Alexa and Katie. That one is uh, really heartwarming and really fun. <laughs> it's about like a uh, about like the high school experience of a girl who's fighting leukemia. So like Ooh. it sounds like it should be dark and gritty, but it's actually like really fun and just endearing. Oh, really? So worth, uh, worth checking out. It's um, it's a lot of fun. 
my daughter's name is Alexa. And you know, back oh, then no. I thought it my name is Alexandra. <laughs> well, yeah, back then I thought it was a really unique, cool name. And then she got older, I found out it wasn't so unique. And then when Amazon Alexa came along, of course, she's uh, been tired of hearing that, you know, working at athletic club, people come up, Alexa, do this, Alexa, do that. Yeah, okay, I get it. Funny. Thank you. That died a long time ago. <laughs> Cool. Yeah, love uh, any other picks? Um, let's see. On um, oh, on a more well, I guess like on a more technical note, um, maybe is picks the right place to link to that uh, promise implementation that I told you about. We'll categorize this under shameless plugs. Uh, I have a shameless oh, plug fine. myself, so this will work perfectly. That's fair. All right. So shameless plug. There's my ebook uh, asyncawait.net. I need the co- version 1.1 came out about a year ago. I need to come out with version 1.2 big change will probably be that version 1.2 will focus more on view as opposed to react because well when i first wrote the book i was doing like a little bit more react and i was like kind of not sure where i wanted to go with front-end frameworks um since then i've decided yeah i'm just doing everything in view going forward Been a wonderful two years since i just made that decision and uh, asicaway.net and github.com slash vcarpuff 15 slash simple dash promise is the simple promise implementation. Simple promise. All right. We will get that yeah. into how, uh, how simple it is, uh, is up, is up to you, but it's simpler <laughs> than, uh, than you're, than reading Bluebird or Q. I can guarantee you that. And what are Bluebird and Q? Sorry. I'm not. Oh, they're, uh, they're popular user land promise libraries. Bluebird was Bluebird was pretty popular up uh, when Promises first came out because it was like very fast. It was faster than Native Promises for a long, long time before Native Promises caught up. Mm-hmm. And uh, Q was kind of like one of the first, uh, like one of the early movers in, uh, in Promise libraries. Awesome. All right. I my shameless plug I've mentioned previously is there is a new course at viewmastery.com that I have recorded and is in the process of being released on it's called Next 3 Essentials. It's a very basic course on Next 3 how to get up and running with it, how to use setup scripts uh, and a number of things just like the real basic introductory but it uses we're using use fetch inside of next three to query a uh, cryptocurrency api and display some data for the user so you can see that at uh, viewmastery.com and i'll throw a link in there for the those who are into masochism i'm just kidding no it's actually a very good course and the bonus is at the end of every episode you get a dad joke from me. I forget the title that they use is something about really bad dad jokes or horrific dad jokes or something like that, but they're still funny. So <laughs> at least I think so. So anyway, all righty. That is going to wrap it for this episode of Views on View. Thank you, Val, for coming on. That was great. He certainly got more stuff to talk about. So hopefully we'll get him on here in the future and talk about other view-specific things. Uh, and in the meantime, adios, and we'll talk at you next time. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.